Good morning. Morning. Morning upstairs. Good morning. Yeah, it's always so great to see you up there. I never get to see you till I actually come on the stage, but there's probably as many people upstairs as downstairs, which is really exciting. So um, great to have you this morning. I'm Dan. I'm one of the leaders here, and we're studying the book of Philippians. Looking forward to see you on Friday night. I'm going to bust some moves along with you. If you come, I'll come, and I'll dance, and I will also pretend to enjoy myself kaleeing. So uh, we're doing this series in Philippians, and uh, if you missed last week's preach, by the way, Matthew broke away from Philippians. He was talking about the vision of kings. Great message to listen to. If you haven't listened to it yet, you can get it online or on the King's Church podcast which has not only last week's preach, but many other great resources as well. So do, uh, do make sure you get hold of that one. So today we're back in Philippians on our part three of this series that we're doing. If you missed the introduction, there's a little flyer that uh, Luke and George have produced between them, giving some background to Philippians, all the kind of contextual stuff that might really just help you study this book in your own time. And that's available on the welcome desk at the back. So we're going to read from Philippians chapter 1. Verses 27 to 30. Luke, could you get that flip chart for me, please? And just pop it here alongside me. That would be great. Thank you. Philippians 1, 27 to 30. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence... I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's just pray for a moment. Lord, we just want to thank you for your presence. Thank you that we're free to come before you and sing. Thank you, Lord, that with boldness we can approach your throne without fear of rejection. Lord, you love to be among us. And thank you for the freedom we enjoy in this country just to gather and worship. And uh, Lord, we, we love to gather together like this. And we just want to pray right now as we approach your word that, that you'd speak to us, Lord. <laughs> Lord, we're hungry. We're We're so hungry for you, Lord. Lord, we recognize that unless you speak to us, unless you quicken these words to our thinking and our hearts and our minds, then, Lord, we go away hungry. And we pray, Lord, that you'd just help us right now as we dig deeper into these scriptures. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to get everything that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you've ever been to a classical music concert. Uh, a friend of mine from King's here, Simon, uh, invited me to, to go along to a, a classical music concert at the Usher Hall a couple of months ago, and uh, it was absolutely brilliant. I'm, I'm no expert in classical music. In fact, I'm, I'm not an expert in anything, if I'm honest. I'm a bit of a generalist in all of life. But Simon said, hey, do you fancy coming along to this? And uh, I said, sure. And he, he caveated it. He said, this is a, he said, don't worry, this is a beginner's concert, because Simon is something of an expert on classical stuff, and uh, I said, well, that's great, and he gave me the name, but he said it's, it's, uh, it's performed by the uh, Royal Scottish uh, National Orchestra, and uh, he said it's Beethoven's, fifth, uh, Beethoven's Sixth Symphony. So, I, uh, you know, not wanting to appear an idiot, I kind of did my Wikipedia research before I went, and uh, just so I could ask meaningful questions in the interval, you know, so I could, 
I could make meaningful interactions with Simon, like, gosh, I didn't think there was anywhere to go after the fifth. You know, he did. <laughs> you know, the whole da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da was just amazing. I didn't think he could do any better than that. But the sixth, wow, isn't it incredible? All those sorts of meaningful comments. Do you ever do that? No, it's just me, right? Um, and uh, so anyway, I was dead excited, and we went to the Usher Hall absolutely packed full of music lovers who just gone to hear a great piece performed. And as, as the, the sort of the audience is gathering and seating, and I'm looking around, I'm just enjoying every moment of this, and, and you're, you're looking around the stage, and there's maybe 40 or 50 orchestral instruments with their players on the, on the thing, and they're all tuning up, and you're looking around, and saying, wow, these are probably some of the most talented musicians in Scotland right here. And then... It, 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 the thought just passed my mind. I'm sure this is perfectly unfair, but you, you saw the guy with the triangle on the back row. And I thought, I wonder if he gets paid the same as everybody else. Surely he didn't have to study as long and as hard as the front row uh, violinists. But anyway, I'm sure that, that's perfectly unfair. I'm sure, I'm sure being a percussionist is a demanding job. But anyway, so I was just full of all these thoughts. And then, then Simon whispered to me, he said, oh, I said, look, he said, look over there. He said, there's a little uh, recording set. He said, it looks like Radio 3 are here recording it. And I was like, wow. In my head, I thought, hmm, Radio 1, Radio 2, Radio 4, and Radio 5 Live I've heard of. <laughs> Radio 3. And he said, yeah, it's the classical music one. I thought, oh, yeah. That's, that's the one that I usually skip past. But... <laughs> And uh, anyway, so the whole thing is coming to a start, and, and, it's, and the sense of anticipation is kind of audible, and everybody quietens down. And you just, the, the musicians are all going quiet, they're all sitting ready, and we're about to start. I'm thinking, great. Just as we're about to start, this slightly disheveled guy walks in from the side of the stage, and I'm like, oh no. Security. How did this guy get on the stage? But then everybody starts cheering and applauding. And I'm like, Simon, what, what's going on here? And my guide said to me, he said, no, he said, he's the conductor. He's the conductor. I said, well, he's late. <laughs> he said, no, that's, that's the protocol in an orchestra. He has the place of special honor. He comes on and, and because he's, it, it all centers around him this evening. And uh, yeah, well, you, you know what orchestras are like and you know what conductors do. And, and he picked up his stick. And from the moment he picked up his stick, it was like he called forth life out of that orchestra. Creativity, skill, gifting, beauty. And it was amazing. It was quiet. It was loud. It built and it went down again. It, over that next hour and a half, I've got to say, it was sensational. There was bits that moved your very inner soul. It was incredible. It's incredible what life can come out of a stick. Now, why do I talk about conductors? Because our passage today, it starts with these words. It says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And I want you to have this image of a conductor in your head. As we're talking about these verses, Paul is saying, conduct yourself. Something that we understand about the Philippian church is this, that Paul was there at the start. And perhaps they'd been used to in past years, maybe 10 years earlier, when Paul was there, week in, week out. They were used to him conducting them. Whenever they had a spiritual issue or a theological question or a question about family life or, or, or work or something, I thought, how do you do this as a Christian? Who would they default to? The Apostle Paul. I, mean, I, mean, I feel kind of sorry for the other elders in his church. Who would you go to if you had a theological question? Dan, Matt, Luke, or the Apostle Paul? <laughs> of course you'd go to him because you'd think, 
he, he seems to know God so well. He was one of the greatest, probably the greatest leader that ever lived. And they were used to him being there, directing them. They never had to go far without Paul saying, this is how you live your life. This is what you should be doing. This is what it means to be a Christian. Their life had started uh, as a church with uh, a businesswoman and her family, a slave girl, and a Philippian jailer and his family. Right at the heart of that church was diversity. That's the heart of every good church, every healthy church, a desire to reach out to people who are not like you. Sometimes you can come to church, and maybe you feel this way today, and you feel like, oh, I'm a bit different than everybody else here. Do you know what the truth is? You're very welcome here, because there are so many people who feel that way. Every time they come to King's Place, so many people say, oh, no, I'm not quite sure I'm like everybody else. Well, I'm glad you're not. I'm glad that you're different, and I'm glad that we can be a family together. And what we've already found about Paul in that first chapter of Philippians is that he is their number one fan. In fact, he uses phrases that we've already come across. He says, I thank my God for you in all my prayers for you. He says, I keep praying for you. He says, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the time of Christ Jesus. He says, I long for you. Do you know that's the heart of great Christian leadership? is to be a fan of the people you lead and to believe that God's work in them will come to completion. If you're a Christian leader or if you're leading in any place in life, then you do well to learn from the Apostle Paul's example, which is to make your leadership not about you and your advance and your success. Make it about the people that you lead. Be their number one fan. Celebrate their success. Believe in the work of God in their life. So now... He's taking it from this stage where he says, perhaps you've been looking to me. I've been conducting you in the past. He says, and now, he says, I'm taking you to a new stage in your Christian journey. He says, I want you to conduct yourselves. I want you to take more responsibility for your Christian life and your church so that when I'm not there all the time, you will keep doing the very things that I've taught you to do. And in the NIV, it starts with these words. It says, Whatever happens, if you're in the ESV, it says only this. In your life, do you find that stuff happens? Are you familiar with that idea? Stuff that you didn't invite to happen or want to happen, but happens. Maybe a pressure or a, an illness. Maybe a relationship breakup or a breakdown. Maybe a stress, a parental-child relationship, and you think, that's just not going well. Yeah, just something just explodes in your life. There can, be a, uh, there can be an underlying sort of thing sometimes that we think as Christians we shouldn't have to face those sorts of things, that we should just be happy all the time because God lives in us and we're, 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 we're just following him. So therefore, God should cut us some slack and just make things go well for us. And what you find is that the very opposite of that seems to be true that stuff happens in our lives. Stuff happens in your life and my life. Uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, just into New Year, I was, um, I was just looking for a bit of pick-me-up Christian teaching, you know. Uh, even us church leaders need that from time to time. And it was sort of fresh into New Year. I thought, I just needed to listen to an inspiring message from, uh, from somebody. So I went um, to the King's Arms website in, in Bedford, a, a really growing, thriving uh, church that's really seeing some amazing breakthroughs 
happen in the spirit. And I thought, I, I listened to one of the leaders' preachers there, Simon Holly, and I thought, it was, it was titled Life in the Spirit. And I thought, yes, here we go. This sounds good. His opening words were, it was his first message of the year. He said, well, it's been quite a year for me. He said, this time last year, somebody tried to defraud me of thousands of pounds. The week after that, me and my family were thrown into a housing crisis. A month after that, I became ill with a liver condition, which was a mystery illness that kind of I was really unwell with for pretty much the whole year. He says, we still haven't got to the bottom of it. He said, but I'm feeling a lot better now. He said, combined with that, he said, I haven't actually slept for the last year. He said, God, this isn't really great, is it? <laughs> but then his next sentence said it all. He said, but the good news is we're still standing. We're still going. We're still trusting God in the middle of all of it. That's what it is. Sometimes hardships happen in our life. Stuff happens. Whatever happens. It's what we do in those situations. We don't have control. You don't have control over the things that happen in your life, by and large. Sometimes we can, can make certain choices, but when stuff happens, often it's uninvited. And the choice we make is how we respond. And that seems to be what Paul is getting at in our passage today. And for them, he's dealing the issue with the issue of relational disappointment. Because they're kind of thinking, well, I hope Paul's going to come back soon. We kind of miss him. And he's saying, well, I, whether I'm absent in the body or with you. And, and he, says, I, he, says, he says, I may or may, make, may or may not make it back to you, he says, but whether I do or not, I, I want to hear good things about you. I think they probably wanted the next line of his letter to say something like, so the good news is, guys, they're letting me out of prison. I'll be on a horse, and I'll be with you for next Sunday. Book me on the preaching rotor. But that wasn't what he got to say to them. And they would have been disappointed. Now, that wasn't anybody's fault. That wasn't Paul's fault. He was following God, and, and it, they couldn't have blamed him for that. But there would have been people there on that Philippian church, like there would be today, who would be thinking, well, you know, he was the guy I really connected to. He was the leader I really loved listening to and preaching. The very nature of Christian life is that relationships change and people come and go. I've got to be honest, I mean, six months ago we, we sent um, Daniel and Sarah Duggan uh, off to Canada to help plant a church there. Uh, Daniel was involved in leadership here. There are still times when I deeply miss Daniel and Sarah and their kids. Do you? Yeah. Most notably when we pray together and I miss Daniel's thundering crying prayers that kind of fill the whole room. Do you know the ones? And I think, yeah, I, I miss that. I miss that. I feel a sense of loss. That's part of the Christian life that we live. But somebody once said, great faith comes from great fights, great testimony from great tests, and great triumphs from great trials. You can't control your circumstances, but you can choose how you respond. And Paul starts it this way. He says, only this, whatever else happens, conduct yourself. Take up your beating stick like this and make sure that you are living in the way that God is calling you to. Uh, another church leader by the name of Bill Hybels, he once had a room full of leaders and he said, he, he, asked, he challenged him. he said, who do you think the most challenging person in the whole world, in your leadership sphere, is for you to lead? People started to think to themselves, someone was thinking about sort of church members or, or other, other leaders that they had responsibility for or family people. And then he stopped and he said, whatever you're thinking, it's wrong. 
He said, the toughest person you will ever lead in your life is yourself. You. And then he went on to tell the story of um, King David before he was king in, in the Bible, who, how in 1 Samuel 30, David is fleeing for his life. He's got a crew of, of men and, uh, and others who are with him. And it all goes wrong one day because the Philistines break into their camp while the men are all away with David. And they kidnap all the wives and all the children of all of David and his men. And they all get back home that evening and he says they are so upset. He says they cry till they can cry no more. There is deep sadness, as you'd expect if you've had your family forcibly removed from you. And David has had his own family taken away. So he's having to deal with that personally. Yet everybody begins to turn on him. His own men who are loyal to him, they, they, they say... They begin to sort of blame him, and they, they say, well, you know what, we should stone this guy. We should kill David. He's kind of, he's led us into this problem. And there's this beautiful verse when you read about David's response. And it says simply this, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. In the moment when the pressure was greatest, David took some time out and he spoke to himself and he found strength in God. He received God's strength. David was a man who knew all about that. When you read the Psalms, it's, I don't think it's coincidental, you read phrases in, in like Psalm 103 where it starts, bless the Lord, O my soul. Who's he talking to? Himself. Himself. Do you ever do that? I suggest that we need to do that more than we perhaps imagine. Here's sometimes how it works for me. I get out of bed, and I don't feel like praying. I don't feel like worshipping. I pick up the stick, and I start conducting myself. One, two, three. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Oh. And it, I, I still don't feel like it. I'm still singing the song. I'm not feeling one bit of this. But I keep going. I keep going until God comes and fills my heart. We need to be people who conduct ourselves. This phrase, to uh, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel, if you look in the footnotes of your Bible, it may say something like this. It also has this element of behaving as a citizen. And in uh, Philippi, there was a lot of Roman citizens who lived there, and they had special rights and privileges as being uh, Roman citizens. They had special protections. Paul himself enjoyed some of those special protections. And... And this, this phrase had this sense, of when Paul was saying, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel, it has this sense as well of behaving like a citizen of the gospel. To behave as one who follows the rules of the gospel. And let me try and explain it this way. Um, who can tell me what this is? It's a Venn diagram, well done. Um, <laughs> You might have seen one of these before when I was preaching. Okay, and, and just to remind you, those of you who have forgotten your standard grade maths or higher maths, whatever you do this kind of thing, that for something to be in a Venn diagram, to be in one of the circles, it has to have the same value. So, for example, if we call this circle Dan and this circle Hudson, which is my name, by the way, um, then 
Anybody in the, you, you could, I don't know, how many Dan's in the room today? I'd, I'd, I'd hazard a guess, there's probably three Dan's in the room. How many Hudson's in the building today? I'm going to hazard a guess, there's at least six, because that's my family. <laughs> there might be more, love to meet you afterwards. Um, now, in the crossover here is something that is true for, for both of these circles, so how many Dan Hudson's? There's only, there's only one in this room today. In the world, apparently, there's about eight million. Just never Googled my own name, but I've just found that out. But, um, so, so here we have a Venn diagram. So here's the image that we're being drawn to here, which is this that we have, we'll call this one world, and this one God's kingdom. Don't worry if you can't read it. That just simply says world and God's kingdom. What Paul is saying to his Philippian Christians. He says, I want you to understand that if you are a Christian, and this is true for you here today, that you're not living your life somewhere in this circle, just randomly. It's not just like you're a believer who who just has some thoughts about God and prays some prayers. He says, actually, you're part of this kingdom. This is where your citizenship is now. This is where you belong. This is your home. He said, Ultimately, this is where we're going. In fact, in the previous verses that, that Luke looked at a couple of weeks ago, Paul was saying, I don't know whether to depart with Christ and be with him, which is better by far. Paul is kind of deciding, shall I be here or here or here or here? He said, I don't know. They're both pretty good. But he's pretty sure he's always in God's kingdom. His main identity is in the kingdom. So he says, if you're living in the world, in Philippi or Edinburgh or Scotland or wherever town you're from or Livingston, then he says, live your life on the value system of God's kingdom. He says, you're living here. If you're alive on the earth right now, this is where you find yourself. Christians find their deepest confusion and dissatisfaction when they try to operate under worldly value systems, which are in conflict to God's kingdom. And where there's a conflict between God's values and worldly values, we're always to choose God's values. And that's where we'll find our greatest delight, because you know what? You're only headed in one direction. Wherever you are on this thing, one day you will only be part of this. In fact, the Bible says that one day God's kingdom will one day take over all of this kingdom. Worldly values will be no more. God's kingdom values will be all that matters. So we're wise to give ourselves some them. So Paul says, live as citizens of that kingdom. Behave as citizens of the gospel. To live a life worthy of the gospel means to live a life in line with the life of Jesus. It means to act like him. It means to feed the hungry, to care for the oppressed, to confront injustice, to convey his eternal kingdom values, to speak the truth. It means we don't fear what the world fears. It means we don't fear death and uncertainty and suffering because we're secure in that one day forever kingdom. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. You and I, we're in this world, but we're not of this world. Now, important to say, when Paul is saying, live a life worthy of the gospel, something he is categorically not saying is this. He is not saying that if you try hard enough, then that will be the way you are saved and the way you will make yourself right with God. He's not saying, try hard to be right with God. That's not at all what he's saying. 
Neither is he saying, in view of how much God has done for you and how much Christ loves you, and, and look what he's done, he's died on the cross, therefore you must pay him back or try to. He's not saying that at all. He's simply saying this. God, in his mercy, through Jesus, has made you part of a new kingdom, a new family. Live like you're a member of the family. Sometimes our, our kids will come home from school and you know, the, the, they'll have heard the latest swear word or whatever it is. And, and usually when we discuss that, it, the simple answer is, well, that's just not how we talk in this family. That's not how we behave. That's not how we do it here. And that's the answer. When you're in God's kingdom... You behave as a new creation in Christ, one who is called into eternity. And here's the wonder of it, that when Paul gives an instruction where he says, live a life worthy of the gospel, he does that with the full confidence that he believes that they can do that. You know how sometimes when somebody asks you to do something at work or, or in class or whatever, and you think, I, I can't do that. They've just totally misjudged what I am able to do, what my skill set is. And you, you might sort of nervously say, oh, I just can't do that. Sometimes when people read instructions in the scripture, like live a life worthy of the gospel, as Christians, we get a bit discouraged. We think, well, I can't really do that. Who can do that? Paul says, you can. In fact, Paul wasn't even confident in his own strength to do it. His confidence was in God. So later on in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, when he's talking about all the pressures he's under, and people are thinking, gosh, I wonder if he's going to do it. He says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And that's true for you. You can do this. Can you live a life worthy of the gospel? Yes, you can. How do you do it? In your own strength? No. In Christ's strength, yes, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, as we sang about earlier, lives in you and me. It's not about simply obeying rules. Another Christian who spent a lot of his life in prison was a guy called John Bunyan. He, um, he wrote the book Pilgrim's Progress. And commenting on in a poem of the difference between try-harder type religion versus grace that empowers us. He, he makes this, this line. He says, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Tis better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly. It gives me wings. The same gospel that saves you gives you power by the Holy Spirit to live a life worthy of Christ. One day, this can be written on your tombstone or on your Facebook epitaph or whatever it is if you die before Jesus comes again, where brothers and sisters in Christ will write on your wall and say, they lived a life worthy. She lived a life worthy of the calling. She didn't live for herself. She lived for others. He didn't live according to the pattern of this world. He lived according to an eternal value system. Make that your ambition. I want to give us three... Uh, areas where we can live a life worthy of the gospel, which I th we find in these other verses that we read this morning. Firstly, we live a life worthy of the gospel by inhibiting the culture of individualism. Inhibiting the culture of individualism. So Paul said, then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, 
striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Do you know there's some things in life that you can do much better by yourself? Brushing your teeth, tying your shoelaces, practicing a musical instrument, eating an ice cream. So much better alone, isn't it? (laughs) But do you know, being a Christian is never something you can do better alone. Never. You are designed in God's providence to be part of a community of believers and to stand as one with others. Do you know, individualism finds its origins in Satan himself. In the Garden of Eden, where the serpent tempts Eve and Adam, and and his temptation is this, he says, eat this fruit and you will be like God. You won't need to follow God anymore. You won't need to, to, to do any of that stuff because you'll be like him. You'll be your own God from now on. We, the, the, the origins of Satan in the scripture are mysterious, but if, as many think, Isaiah 14 contains some of the, the language of the origins of Satan, then he's described as saying these kind of words in rebellion against God. He says, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit down. I will make myself like God. And we see that in stark contrast to the person of Jesus Christ who we come across in Philippians 2, next time we look at Philippians, where it says of Jesus, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped at, to be held on to. Satan says, I will have the best. I will be me. Jesus says, I will serve other people, no matter what the cost to me. Conduct worthy of the gospel is embedded in need for one another. In a couple of weeks' time, some of you will be watching the Six Nations, yeah? And England, Scotland, that first uh, one at Murrayfield. And you know what? There'll be moments in that match where Richie Gray and Johnny Gray, they'll be there and there'll be a scrum. You know what I mean? And they'll be there, like this. Any rugby fans here? (laughs) I'm trying hard here. Uh, Okay. So so when that rugby scrum happens, you see, the the sin of individualism, it has two applications. One of them is this, that you're in the rugby scrum, and between the eight of you, you have to fight with all your might to get that ball. If somebody just breaks out and says, you know what, you you seven, you just handle it by yourselves, I'm a bit tired here, you're not going to win the ball. You see, it it requires a team. It requires all to be on board to say, no, my my skill set matters here. You can't afford to not have me in this team. Sometimes we just undervalue the role we have as believers. We say, you know, it doesn't matter if I go to a small group. I'm sure they'll have a great time without me. What you don't understand is the great time is formed when God's people come together. Wouldn't this be dull today if I was just standing here by myself? Of course it would. I'd do it anyway, to be honest, but... um, (laughs) The the, the other application of individualism is that we get carried away with our own success and our own sense of self-worth. You you, you see the footballers in the Premiership when they reach that upper echelon of just being great. Yeah, the the lower league teams, I support Hearts, and you just see this... um, It's a brilliant thing. Whenever they score a goal, it's always like a group hug and a team thing, and it's just like, yes, we did it together. When you see those great footballers and... 
they score a, just an epic goal, you know, and you think, wow, how do they do it? And they just kind of do a tour of the stadium by themselves while the other players try and catch up with them to kind of wish them well done. That's the sin of pride. It's saying that I don't need you. I don't need the church. God's calling me to my thing. And sure, if you want to tag along with me, that's fine. No, we need each other. We're not isolated individuals. We're a team of talents, a band of brothers, a company of Christ worshippers, a gang of gospel preachers, a posse of prayer warriors, a herd of heavenly citizens, a swarm of spirit-filled saints, a gaggle of grace recipients. I enjoyed that. Charles Spurgeon said, Some Christians try to go to heaven alone in solitude, but believers are not compared to bears or lions or other animals that wander alone. Those who belong to Christ are sheep in this respect. They love to get together. Sheep go in flocks and so do God's people. Matthew was asking the question or or presenting the vision last week, how do we grow to be a church of 400? We have such a passion to, to reach this city with the good news of Jesus. And we feel the next stage is this, that we believe God that he's going to add another 200 people to us here. We're going to see those saved and added over this next time. How is that going to come about? It's not going to be by one person. It's going to be by a multifaceted, multi-gifted church all playing their part, both in specialisms of, of children's work or youth or, or welcoming people, or preaching, or whatever the special thing is, but also people who care enough about the whole team to say, you know what, I might need to act out of gifting on this occasion because nobody else seems to be doing this thing. Keep your eyes open on Sunday mornings and, and throughout the life church thing. What needs doing here? Don't assume that somebody else is always going to do it because in teams, we all pitch in. Paul described it as one body with many parts. Our unity brings meaning to our diversity. Here's, uh, so, uh, part, part one, inhibit the culture of individualism. Here's the second way we can live a life worthy of the gospel. We need to fight against fear. We need to develop courage in the face of adversity. So Paul said these words, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but you will be saved, and that by God. Without being frightened. He says that the temptation for you Philippians is you're going to be a bit frightened by the people who oppose you. We don't know a lot about what opponents they're facing. All that seems to be obvious is that they're not Christians, and because he talks about them being destroyed and the Philippians ultimately being saved. But clearly they're adversarial towards the church, adversarial towards the teaching of Jesus. They want to shut them down. People who don't like the message of Jesus, antagonists. These are people who have thus far resisted the opportunity to have their sins forgiven and live for God and be with him as part of his family. This seems to happen throughout the the New Testament. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John get arrested for preaching a, a message that doesn't conform to what is expected. And they get told to speak no more in the name of Jesus and about the resurrection. Do you know how they respond? They go to a prayer meeting and they lead out in prayer and they say, now Lord, enable your servants to speak with great boldness. When fear comes, when intimidation comes, the correct response isn't to back off and go quiet. 
The correct response is to ask God for courage to keep giving you the opportunities. Now, that will look very different in our world today, depending where you live as a Christian. If you live in Syria or North Korea, right now there's a threat of physical violence and life, it's life endangering. If you live in Edinburgh, then that threat is probably simply appearing uncool or bigoted or just a bit of a traditionalist, a bit old-fashioned. As you say, well, this is what I believe God says and this is what I believe the Bible teaches. The application is the same. You need lots of courage by the Holy Spirit, not to withdraw. Ask God for courage to share Christ so that it will be a sign to them, a sign, a blessing to them that they can actually see. You know when uh, Stephen, in in Acts chapter 6, when he was uh, being put to death, and they all gathered around him, and they said, go on, what what do you have to say for yourself? And Luke records, he says, his face looked like an angel. In the most extreme pressure moment of his life, when he's about to speak and declare Christ for that last time, where everybody in the room is saying, gosh, there's something so beautifully pure about this man. Even his opponents could see it. When you speak for Christ, it speaks of his greatness, and it gives him an opportunity. Okay, final thing. Um, In living this life worthy of the gospel is that we need to see our struggles as essential to our success. Verse 29, for it has been granted on you to behalf, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Not only to believe, but to suffer. In fact, that word God has granted you, it comes from that same uh, Greek word charis, which is used to talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, where we receive all those lovely gifts, you know, the gift of tongues and prophecy and miracles. Well, here's another one, suffering. Paul describes it as faith and suffering, as both being gifts that God gives his children because it is a help to us. New Testament believers understood that to live a life worthy of the gospel was the same as being worthy to suffer disgrace. On one occasion, after the apostles had been flogged, For their beliefs, it says, they left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. In our world, we see suffering or discomfort as something that should be rectified immediately. Those who live for the gospel wait on God's times of deliverance, holding on to him until that comes. We don't have time to go into a whole theology of suffering, but the Bible says that trials teach us perseverance. They give us character and hope. They make us more aware of God's great love for us by the Spirit. They prove to us that we belong to a more future, longer-lasting, eternal kingdom. They make us more like Christ, and they identify us with a Saviour who suffered for us. Great faith comes from great fights, great testimony from great tests, and great triumphs from great trials. We're going to close in just a moment. Maybe the band could come and join me just as I uh, wrap this up, and we're going to sing a final song together. Maybe today you're, uh, you're new to church, you're maybe not even, you wouldn't even describe yourself as a Christian here today. And I want you to know today that God sees you and he loves you. In fact, the 
The Bible says that he's known you from your mother's womb. He's been following your progress. And he's brought you today to this moment to to respond to him. He wants to invite you to join his family, to leave your life of independence. And it's just a step away. He wants to save you from a culture of personal performance. One believer in the Bible says, I sought the Lord and he delivered me from all my fears. Do you know, it's not what other people think that we're to be most concerned with. It's what the right thing to do with our life is. And today I want to ask you to make a decision to put your trust in Jesus Christ, to receive forgiveness for your sins and to allow him to fill your life with his power, which he promises to do. And if that's you today, we're not going to make a song and dance about this, but I'd love you just to pop up your hand. I'd love to pray for you and give you a Bible if that's you. Is there anybody here who would like to put their trust in Jesus? Just put your hand up just now. Maybe you're a Christian here today and I just want to ask you this question. Has anything resonated with you that you need to speak to God about just now? Maybe some worldly thinking has crept back in. Maybe there's a battle for you and you need to just put trust in Christ again. Maybe you're at a low ebb with church and community and you're thinking, you came in thinking, I'm not even sure I'm going to make it back here. You know, God loves you. And God, in his grace, is reaching out to you. And he says, don't give up. Let the Spirit come and help you. Maybe you want to go and get prayer on the balcony and just tell somebody, look, I'm struggling here. Could you pray for me? We all need that. Let's pray that together... As one, we'll strive together for living worthy of the gospel that we can make Jesus known to our city. Amen.